0: we're going through the book of Hebrews, Uh, we're in chapter number 2, and hopefully we'll be making good progress as we continue throughout the next days and weeks and months as we go through this beloved book. In a way to introduce the uh, passage that I want to cover this morning, actually I wanted you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So keep your finger in Hebrews, but actually go over to 1 Corinthians 1, because what the Apostle Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 1 is makes a pretty interesting statement about the gospel that he is preaching. By the gospel that he loves to proclaim. And actually this particular passage in 1 Corinthians 1 is one of my favorites in terms of how it regards the cross. Because notice verse number 18 as Paul is here writing to this Corinthian church. He says, for the word of the cross is, note the word, folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved it is the power of God. In all, down through verse 25, Paul alludes to the apparent folly or even he uses the word foolishness of the cross or of the wisdom of God some seven times. Or excuse me, four times in seven verses. He alludes to this folly, this foolish, even he calls it the foolish wisdom of the world in contrast to the wisdom of God. This sort of vulnerability i think from a preacher is almost unheard of today this one sort of openly admitting that this message that he has if you look at it from a certain point of view it could be regarded as nothing but a joke it sounds like folly but i think this gets to the hearts of what makes the gospel i would say so powerful so affecting and so even amazing Is that this message that Paul and other apostles were so stubborn in preaching. He says, even here, it sounds like folly to some ears. And what is that message? It is, as he says, the word of the cross. Or as he says in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 1. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Here, Paul is openly admitting and actually being very quite vulnerable with the fact that the church's message, his message that he is everywhere proclaiming, everywhere preaching, everywhere inviting folks to believe in this gospel that even we here this morning are standing on and believing as we just sung about. This message is inherently a message of somewhat madness and scandal. At least especially in terms of the wisdom of the world. You might note that word, stumbling block, in verse 23. It's actually one word in Greek. And the Greek is very clear. It just means scandalous or offensive. And according to Paul, that's what this message of Christ crucified on a criminal's cross was all about. It was an outrageous message. A message that provoked offense and scandal in the hearts of many who heard it. Such as why so many were hoping to silence Paul by any means necessary. And yet at the same time it is this exact preaching of this scandalous message. That shows how the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. He says that in verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 1. Why was it though? That the Jews and the Greeks found this Christian gospel so offensive. Why would they sort of uh, raise furled eyebrows at this message that Paul was everywhere trying to convey? And what was it about this message, about Paul's gospel, about our gospel that is so scandalous? I think these questions... That Paul sort of seems to raise, even if he doesn't ask questions. These questions that might pop up in our minds about how and why this message is a stumbling block. I think all of this is answered for us right here in Hebrews chapter 2. This particular section, down from 5 down through the end of chapter 2 of Hebrews, um, I think shows us. Exactly what Paul is talking about when he says that this is a stumbling block, this is folly, because to certain ears it might sound that way. But to us who believe this morning is the power of God. It is the wisdom of the Son who becomes and dies as our brother and our Saviour. That's what I want to show you this morning. This sort of scandalous gospel that we have that is revealed to us at Christmas time, especially. There's three things I want to show you this morning that I think see that help us explain or help us to understand what Paul might have been talking about. And it comes from this particular passage in Hebrews 2. First of all, this morning, I want you to notice God's descent, God's descent. Notice in Hebrews chapter two, verse number six, as he writes again, it has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. The writer here is quoting. Even though he says testified somewhere. He's quoting from the book of Psalms. Particularly Psalm number 8. Those words which are so amazing that leave us even, yes, spellbound just like David as he is marveling at creation, marveling at the handiwork of God and even marveling even more so at the fact that the God who created all of that at an instant with the vapor of his breath was yet even here, as he says, mindful of him. Though the universe is vast, infinitely unknowable, the creator of it all, He knows you. That's what that psalm is trying to get us to see and get us to be impacted by. That that creator, he is mindful. He remembers. He takes notice of you and your cares and your worries. And he, so much so that he cares for your cares. As the writer is quoting, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? For David, as he's writing these words, perhaps... Late in his life, it's not given when that particular psalm was written. David's reflecting on what he had experienced firsthand. You see, for David, this care of God for him wasn't just poetry. This wasn't just words that sounded good that affected him. This was firsthand knowledge that he had, that he was writing about, about the care and concern that God had shown him throughout all those days of stress And adversity and agony and running, being a fugitive from his own throne twice in his own life. His family undergoing all that type of upheaval and resistance and conflict. All of that was tempered and sustained. And he himself was uplifted by what? The hand of God which showed him the care and concern of God. And those same hands which uplifted him were none other than the very hands that formed worlds. So you take all those thoughts. And what the writer does here is actually quite profound. Because as as we've been talking about recently, he's explaining the nature of the Son of God. And what what makes him so much better. Specifically better than the angels in these first couple chapters. But here he applies those same sort of thoughts that David was praying and and worshiping God with. He takes them and connects them directly to Jesus himself. Notice again verses 8 and 9. Well, I'll read verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything of subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see everything of subjection to him, but we see him who, for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see what he's doing He's almost re-expressing the same thoughts in verses 8 and 9 that he just quoted from Psalm 8. So he makes this distinct connection that this mindfulness, we could say, this kindness of God towards man is embodied in Jesus. He is the kindness of God. He is the concern of God for man. Showing up as a person, not just as a feeling, not just as a force, not just as a thought, not just as a well-wish. It is God coming down, embodying the kindness of the Trinity itself and showing us what that means and what that looks like. By, yes, coming alongside man and his depravity and death. You see, in Jesus... We are made to see this depth of feeling God has for humanity. We who are dying. So this is God's mission. This is God's whole motive, so to speak. That in order to rescue we who are dying in flesh and blood, he makes himself, as he says here, a little lower than the angels. So that by tasting death for everyone, he puts on display the grace of God. What an announcement, what a testimony this is to the person of Jesus, who is in himself the embodiment of God's descent into our world, into our frame, to where we are. We ought to never be so uh, sort of nonchalant to that news. Maybe you are already, (laughs) It's Christmas. You've probably heard a dozen sort of uh, sort of covers of the same songs that all talk about Jesus born in a manger, infant holy, infant lowly, and all that. You hear them all the time, every Christmas season. But yet, do they move us to the point that we should be astounded? Because the same astonishment that David had, that God would care for him, is the same thought that we should have, that God doesn't just care. He comes and visits us to show us how he cares. That's Jesus. He is God's care and concern for you and for me in flesh and blood. With a body... (laughs) God in Christ shares in the same things that we share. And notice verse 14. Because this is truly profound. Verse 14 of the same chapter. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He that is Jesus himself likewise partook. Shares of the same things. Namely flesh and blood. He comes down. <laughs> God. God comes down. He descends to this place that we call home, that we call earth, that is filled with violence and vitriol and hatred and bloodshed and violence and suffering and sorrow. And he himself, Jesus, God in the flesh, is afflicted by it all. As he says in verse number 16, notice, For it is surely not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. He comes to where we are to help you and I. He is made like us so that he can help us. As he says here that he might be a true help, a faithful and merciful high priest on our behalf. Who stands in our stead, who comes to our side and gives us the precise and the exact help that we need. This is what we celebrate at Christmas time. Not just the cute little Jesus in a manger. God comes down. This, I think, touches on the scandal of Paul's message that we were hinting at earlier. You know, if you were to scour the mythologies of the gods of ancient Greece or Rome, you would probably be unimpressed. Because you would be actually, you would find it hard-pressed to find any Differences between those deities and humanity itself. And in fact, if you read all of those stories and the annals of all the Greek gods of Olympus and Titan and whatnot, you would find very quickly that they often acted more like humans than any sort of god or, or any sort of ideal that you would want to emulate. They were filled with vice and lust and anger, and they often acted out those. Feelings. They acted on compulsion. They acted on impulse. In fact, if you, if you read those mythologies, which I spent some time doing just reading them, they didn't really do much, these gods, to help humanity thrive or prosper. Next to nothing, they added to that ideal of becoming better or becoming truer. And yet, what were the apostles preaching about in this very day when such mythologies about gods who were more or less violent and more or less um, sort of uh, um, broken? What was Paul and the apostles preaching? Well, their message was entirely concerned with what? A fact, not a myth. As we sung, not a fairy tale, not a fable. But the fact that God's very Son, Jesus Himself, comes into this world of ruin and, and woe. And not only that, but this God also, this Son of God, took for Himself a body that is just like ours. And all of that so that He might help us. You see, that's the, the sort of scandalous twist. That this God doesn't come down to pleasure himself. He doesn't come down to exalt himself. He doesn't come down to do anything to where he might be uh, sort of uh, uh, the one who is getting all the attention, so to speak. But he comes down to help you and I. He comes down to our aid. He comes down, as he says here, to help the offspring of Abraham. This seems a little far-fetched, Paul. This seems a little mad a little outrageous this seems a little bit crazy and I think that's sort of the point is that this is the message of Christmas is that the one who should be deserving all the attention what does he do he comes down and is born in a lonely manger stall a feeding trough a place where cattle would feed The king of glory and of heaven comes down in a nondescript way and is born to a pitiful set of parents. This is Jesus. He comes and helps those who are helpless. And that fact alone, I think, is scandalous enough, that idea of God coming down. But it is what he does when he does come down that I think it gets to the ultimate sort of stumbling block that Paul is talking about, which leads me to point number two this morning. Because not only do we see God's descent, but secondly, we see God's defeat. Notice verse number nine of our text, chapter two of Hebrews. The words of the writer here, I think, are incredibly powerful and significant. Because did you notice? Did you notice what precipitates Jesus being crowned with glory and honor? It is precisely the suffering of death. And did you notice what perfects, or as he says here, uh, completes the salvation that you and I have. The salvation of all those who are in the church. What perfects it? What completes it? Perfect through suffering. There is, I think, no other point which left everyone speechless and offended and utterly dumbfounded than this expression right here. It's one thing for God to descend. It's one thing for God to leave heaven and come to earth. And in fact, many could probably agree to that. There were some mythologies and myths and stories again that filled Rome and Greece about God's coming down. That were, they were familiar with such stories. But saying that God would suffer... Willingly, I might add, was quite another matter altogether. This was the scandal. That and not only that he suffers, but that he dies, the suffering of death, this was pure madness. This was outrageous. This is what those in this first century world, and yes, even perhaps even today, cannot wrap their minds around. Why would God willingly choose this end? This again gets to the heart of why Paul calls the word of the cross utter foolishness and folly. Because in man's wisdom, this does not compute. Such as why Paul mentions the Jews and the Greeks, and we could even mention the Romans. Why they were so disgraced and offended at all of what Paul is here talking about, or the writer of Hebrews is here expressing. For the Jew, the cross, that symbol, that place where Jesus died... Was the ultimate place of disgrace. And the suffering of death on the cross was for them the severest form of condemnation. It stood for a curse. So essentially by Paul saying that Jesus was God and Jesus died on the cross. You're essentially calling God a cursed one. For the Roman the cross represented the ultimate defeat. Roman society was Dominated by this idea of feats of strength and winning at all costs and being the dominant ones, being the winners, being the ones who are seen as the champions, the triumphant ones. Therefore, there's nothing more opposite of that way of life than a cross, the most abject, utterly naked shame of defeat. Therefore, for the Romans, God was a loser. Saying that Jesus is God. And and God was Jesus. And Jesus died on a cross. Makes God. One who loses. For the Greeks. They were. So. Enamored by this idea. Of perfecting the inner man. The spirituality that they could. Attain and acquire through knowledge. And through the perfection of their virtues. And anyone who was. Subjected to the gross scene of a crucifixion was the height of, the, of imperfection. It was the opposite of what they would want to pursue. For them, the Greeks, God was gross. <laughs> they couldn't make sense of how to fit this in with how they were thinking about God and the cross and salvation and, yes, glory itself. Such is why when Paul says these words that he is Christ crucified, he is the very Christ of God, Messiah, the one to whom all of the Jews and all of those who belonged to the nation of Israel longingly looked. That one was none other than the one that was recently hung for dead on a cross of Rome. That's why Paul says it sounds like folly. And yet, what does Paul lovingly and gloriously say in 1 Corinthians 1:25? That it is the foolishness of God that is wiser than men, and the weakness of God that is stronger than men. You see, I think this is revealed right here in this text in Hebrews 2, proclaiming that God willingly suffers. For those that he loves is not strange or it's not foolish at all. In fact, as the writer of Hebrews says in verse number 10, it's fitting. Notice he says, for it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's not strange, it's proper as he says. It's fitting, it is proper, it is appropriate to save those who are shackled by the chains of suffering death. Which is everyone since Genesis 3. God and Christ shares in the same things. He comes and experiences suffering and death for us, for you. He willingly succumbs to the defeat of death on your behalf. This is our God. This is the God that we proclaim everywhere and at every single moment of our lives that we look to. Ours is a God uniquely familiar with all of the sufferings and sorrows that plague us. And this is what makes the glorious gospel that we have so inherently scandalous. Is that it says that God's glory and honor are chiefly seen and recognized and known precisely through Jesus willingly suffering. Willingly dying. Willingly being defeated. You want to see what God values you want to see who God is you want to see what is most true of his character of his nature you want to see what he thinks of you look at a cross as it says in John three sixteen. God loves the world in this way Romans 5.8, God shows his love for sinners while we were still sinners. How? By Christ dying for us. This is the amazing news that I think we often don't often contemplate enough. That it it's precisely through Jesus willingly being defeated, at least at first glance, on a cross. It is precisely through and in the suffering of death that we are introduced to who God is. He is our Savior and our Redeemer and our Lord. And he becomes all of those things and shows us that he is all of those things by allowing Roman soldiers put nails through his hands and feet and to beat him and spit upon him and to mock him and to jeer at him. This is the true sort of message of Christmas, not just the cute little manger scene, but it is a cross that overshadows it all. And I think what even is more surprising and perhaps this is not what we would like to hear. But Jesus willingly embracing suffering and showing us that this is where the crown and the glory and the honor of God is. This likewise means that our own days of suffering and sorrow are not strange either. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. I want you to see this. 1 Peter chapter number 4 and notice what the apostle Peter has to say about suffering for those who are Christians. First Peter 4.12, notice what he says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. What a marvel here that Paul says, or Peter says, excuse me. He's encouraging this church with this staggering news that it is, it is precisely that suffering is not our shame. It's actually our blessing. It is through us that we are glorified through suffering. And yes, even as Paul says, we can rejoice in it. You want to talk about talking madness and talking about folly. Well, Peter here is insinuating is true and pure folly. Who talks like this? Who says things like this? Well, Peter didn't always. Peter's testimony wasn't always to rejoice in the sufferings that we might share with Christ. Peter, of course, was the same man, the same apostle of God, who was found denying that he ever even knew Jesus in the hour of Jesus' need. (laughs) Leading up to Jesus being crucified, remember he denied knowing him three times. He wanted to know part of Jesus' suffering in that moment. And yet, what do we find Peter doing after the resurrection, after he has been with the resurrected Lord? is this right here. Saying that we who believe in Jesus, we who are in the church... We can rejoice and we can count it as a joy to share in the sufferings of Christ. It is like what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 verse 17. That we become the inheritors, the co-heirs of Christ and his glory provided that we suffer with him. This is what runs counter to all of the philosophies and the logic of the modern day. And even perhaps you would say that this runs counter to what you would like to hear. Man's wisdom is entirely concerned with what? That all of the glory and the success and the life and all of the accolades of life are the rewards for those who are strong. Are the rewards for those who are mighty and powerful. The anthem of our age is we could say to the victor belongs the spoils. And that leads everyone to scratch and to claw and to fight to become the victor. To become the one who gets ahead. To become the one who achieves. To become the one who wins. Thus in a world that is seemingly enslaved or we could say shackled by this disease of survival of the fittest. There is no room for the appearance of weakness. We have to shuffle that off. We have to get rid of that. We can't appear weak, which means there's no room for the cross. The emblem of suffering and shame, the ultimate token of weakness, of defeat. You want to know why man finds the gospel of Christ crucified so inherently offensive and so inherently scandalous? Because it appears like Jesus was defeated. But to say that there's no room for the cross means there's no room for God. And that also means there's no hope of salvation. And that's why Paul was preaching. That's why the Hebrew writer was here proclaiming with such force and with such passion and with such adamance. That it is precisely in God's descent and God's defeat that lastly we, occur, we have here the ultimate sort of scandal. God's deliverance. Thirdly, I want you to notice this morning God's deliverance. We are told about this in verse number 16 because notice what happens. He says, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. A wonderful verse, a wonderful phrase which gets us into the right frame of mind that this Hebrew writer has been trying to convey. This word help literally means he runs to our aid. it was not to angels that he ran it wasn't to those who made up his heavenly host it was human beings the offspring of Abraham is everyone here this morning you and me that's who receives the help of God in order to bring about this help notice what he does He helped the offspring of Abraham, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is what astounds all of the host of heaven. You know, there's a great, well, I'll just read it. Just flip over a couple pages to 1 Peter again. But look at chapter 1. Because I want you to notice what Peter sort of alludes to here. Which is I think exactly what the writer of Hebrews is alluding to. 1 Peter 1, look at verse 10. Notice it says. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. And the subsequent glories. What Peter is there saying that the prophets have long foretold of what we've been preaching. How Christ must suffer and therefore enter into his glory. But notice he says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. And the things that that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Notice he says things into which the angels long to look. I love what Peter here insinuates by that phrase. That the, the story of God's promise of salvation. Told through the law. Told through the prophets. Told through all the books of your Old Testament. Told through all of the life of Jesus most distinctly. That story of salvation through suffering. Is something that the angels are curious about. Even they Are stunned by the fact of grace, by the fact that, yes, it is in and through suffering that the offspring of Abraham receives salvation. That's what that phrase there, long to look, means. It means that they have an interest, an earnest desire to understand. You see, angels are curious about what you receive. You know, a couple of weeks ago we spent so, so much time talking about angels and how we're so curious about them, <laughs> longing to understand them. They are actually curious about you and the salvation that you receive through Christ. How you are delivered from sin because of Christ's suffering and death. Which again brings us back to that psalm that the writer was quoting. What is man that God is mindful of him? Who are we that we should receive such condescending love and grace? We are those who are the objects of God's favor. He delights to deliver us. This. My friends, is the scandal of heaven. I think it gets even better. Because notice verse 9 again, one of my favorite verses, but he says that by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone. By tasting death, it is meant that he's sharing and he's experiencing all of that bitterness and pain and all of the anguish that goes along with death, which is just to say he really died. He didn't just faint. He didn't just swoon. Jesus breathed his last on that cross where he hung. And this was the ultimate demonstration of his humility and of his love for us. That he willingly went there. That he willingly subjected himself to that form of suffering. To that form of defeat as he says in the book of John. That no one's able to take his life from him but he's laying it down of his own accord. Therefore by grace we have to see that he didn't have to die. He chose to die. He chose that end. Why? Well verses 14 and 15 tell us. Why did Jesus die in truth to? Notice verse 14: since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook, shared of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see? The wonderful purpose of Jesus' death is so that he, by dying, might abolish the power of death along with the one who wields that power. (laughs) Which brings, brings us to, I think, my favorite sort of part about this whole text is how Jesus brings about this deliverance. Of course, as he's talking here, we know Satan is the evil one. Satan is the one who wields this power of death. This is what he's been sort of dispensing ever since Genesis 3. The devil has been deceiving ever since that moment in the garden. Men and women into embracing death. That's what he's doing when he's convincing you to go the path of sin. As Paul says, the wages of sin is death. Therefore, in the ultimate show of power, in the ultimate show of mercy, what does Jesus do? He surrenders to death in order that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. (laughs) Do you see what he's just done on the cross? (laughs) He's totally disarmed the devil and left him utterly defeated by using the very element that he thinks he's the master of against him. Death. The early church father, Augustine of Hippo, the early bishop and defender of the faith. You know what he calls this? I love this. He calls this the devil's mousetrap. Augustine says this, quote, The devil exalted, the devil rejoiced when Christ died, but by this very death of Christ, the devil is vanquished, as if he had swallowed the bait in a mousetrap. He rejoiced in Christ's death, but what he rejoiced in was his own undoing. The cross of the Lord was the devil's mousetrap, the bait by which he was caught, by the Lord's death. <laughs> what a great way to think about this very moment, that all of what Jesus has been doing is sort of laying the trap. So that devil, that blasted devil, thinks that he's got God where he wants him. <laughs> and then the, the trap is sprung. <laughs> Because three days later, it's not Jesus who's been defeated. It's actually death and sin and the devil. Actually, Satan is the ultimate loser. Actually, Satan is the one who is ultimately embarrassed. How? Because Jesus subjected himself to the embarrassment of the cross. It's reminiscent of that scene in 1 Samuel 17 Where after defeating Goliath, what does David do? He uses Goliath's own sword to cut off his head. It's the ultimate act of triumph and victory and dominance over your enemies. That's what Jesus does on the cross. He takes the sword that Satan thinks he wields. And he says, you're the one who's defeated. You're the one who has lost. This is how God delivers us and this is the ultimate scandal of our gospel, of Christmas itself. The one that we get to rejoice in, the one that we get to delight in. It's the story of God descending to our place of need, to our place of grief, to our place of suffering, to our place of sorrow. And in coming to our place of need and to all of those places where we might be found. He delivers us out of them all. There is no need so great, no hurt so deep, no grief so low that Christ cannot meet. That is the hope that here the writer of Hebrews I think is here getting the church, getting you and I to see. You want to know what God does In order to meet your need, he descends. He succumbs to defeat in order to deliver you out of your need. Don't ever believe that there is some need that you have that Christ cannot solve. That is a lie, straight from the evil one. He's paid for all your needs, he's vanquished them all at the cross. He swallowed all your needs. And that's indeed why he was born. Again the hymn says he was born to die. And born to deliver. And that's not fake news. That is real news. News that is true. News that yes. Is as true as you feel your heart beating in your chest this morning. And how do I know that? Because Christ had a heart that beat in his chest. He came down to this earth, was born just like you and I are, yet without sin. Also, that he could grow and die and live again on your behalf. This, my my friends, this morning, is the glorious, yes, scandalous news of the gospel that we can relish in, that we can revel in. We have a God. Who dies in order that we might be delivered. Have you been delivered this morning from your sin? I don't know where you are in your spiritual walk. In your spiritual life. Maybe this morning you've run away from church for years. Maybe you would say even this morning that Pastor Brad you have a need. That you just don't know if Christ can meet. Because you haven't really seen evidence of it. We're evidence based people aren't we? We want to see something tangible. But there's a hope that comes along with Jesus. That sometimes makes us believe in the faith. The trusts in the things that are unseen. What does he say in verse number 8? We don't see everything in subjection under his feet now. But we believe that it will be. Have we seen the signs of God winning in our day? Not always. Sometimes it actually appears as if God is losing. But the hope of history and the hope of right now is what? That sin is defeated. That death will be no more. And that we who believe in the Son of God will be raised just like he was raised from the dead. This morning, whatever your need is. Your need is met in the God who comes down. Let us pray.